all of a sudden, the world doesn't look the way it once did. What once seemed so stable now crumbles in chaos. What once could be trusted no longer has credibility. Yet in the midst of it all, there is hope. When who will reign on earth is uncertain, there is one who reigns from heaven with certainty. He reigns with righteousness. He reigns in power. He reigns with authority. One look at his throne changes everything. One look at his throne brings vertical clarity to a horizontal chaos. One look at his throne is what we need. A perspective shift, a confidence shift, a vision shift. so glad that we get to come together, have our confidence shifted into who Christ is alone. Amen? That's something we need every week. We need a time to gather as God's people together. We can do that on our own, but there is power in hearing the voice of someone next to me singing, declaring, believing, shouting, weeping, whatever it might be. Standing in faith together, I'm grateful for Vertical Church and a place that we can gather and for you being here today. I'm grateful for our online audience that joins us every week as well. There's a lot of folks that watch online. In fact, uh, Hunter and I were doing some talking this past week or past couple of weeks. We've been looking at some of the numbers that people that watch during the week or on Sundays like this and during the week, and it appears there is an audience as large as, if not larger, online than there is here every week. Amen. Amen. The ministry that God has here is uh, having an impact uh, across the United States, and we believe even further than that. A new series today to carry us through November, um, carry over from last week where we began in Isaiah 6, Vision Shift. Vertical focus always brings horizontal clarity, and that's what we need in our day. That's what we always need as followers of Jesus Christ. That's what every person needs. Helen Keller was born June 27th in 1880. She was 19 months old. She contracted an illness that left her blind and deaf. As you can imagine, raising a young child has its own struggles. But when you're raising a child that cannot see and cannot hear, you only increase the struggle. For she can't perceive the world around her like you do. She can't hear your voice. She can't understand your actions and these began to really complicate the home of the Kellers. She became very erratic in her behavior. Temper tantrums were expected and began to be uncontrollable. And they even wondered, should she be placed in an institution where someone could do something different than they could? As part of their attempt to help, they brought in a young woman named Ann Sullivan who would work with her to help her learn a language, a language that she would not see but feel with her hands as Ann formed letters in her hands, letters she had not ever seen Sounds she couldn't equate a reality with. And it was very challenging. One night, after long, long struggles, Helen was finally able to perceive what Anne had been trying to tell her. And as they sat beside a water pump with the water gushing out, onto Helen's hands 
and Anne forming the letters to make the word water. She finally got it. Though she could not see physically, the light came on and she saw what Anne was trying to do. Before the night was over, Helen would learn 30 more words because she finally got it. She could see. She just needed to shift everything that she had expected to be the way of communication would occur to a new way. Helen went on to become very, very accomplished and successful. She would become the first deaf and blind person to earn a bachelor's degree. She would write 12 books. She would become a world-renowned public speaker, and she won the Presidential Medal of Freedom. She had a shift in her vision. The Bible says that you and I are born blind and deaf to the heart of God. We are born in sin. We are born consumed with ourselves. We are born wrapped up in our guilt, rejection, and pain. And we flail around in frustration and anger. We act out uncontrollable until the day that grace speaks into your heart and you respond by faith. When that happens, you can see. You can see the forgiveness of God. You can see the truth of God. You can see his mercy. You can see yourself accepted. And it changes the way you see. It brings a shift to your vision. And then you and I begin a process of walking by faith, which is seeing from God's perspective. Seeing with his eyes, not our own. And this ability is a gift given to us by God. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is a gift that God gives. And when this new clarity comes, it gives the world new meaning. It gives relationships a different perspective And it requires us to be in the process of continually shifting our vision. Not going back to the old way. Not leaning on ourselves. Not trusting in our own mind and emotions. But a shift that continually keeps us looking back to God. To say, God, I want to see with your eyes, your promises, and your truth. Because the only way to get any kind of Clarity to the chaos here is to get some clarity here. Our message today is called 2020 Clarity. Now, the pun is kicking in about this moment. You see it. See it. Hey, you got to stay up on this. I'm going to go quick, all right? It's 2020. That's clear vision. That's also the year we're in, in case you didn't know that. And if anybody needs some clear vision, it's the people living in 2020. I need some clarity. Because this is not what I had on my list of things to do in 2020. This was not on my list of goals. This is not how I thought it was going to go. This is not what I thought was going to happen, said everybody, right? And just about the time you think, okay, that was weird... Let's kind of get back to normal. It just goes again, you know, and it gets into some other kind of weird thing, and the year's not over. And the only way, the only way to get any kind of clarity about what's happening in our world and in your life is to get a clear focus on the Lord in heaven. It's the only way. It's not just a way. It's not just an option. It's the way. It is the only way. I don't need more perspective from people around me. I don't need 
five more social media accounts to follow. I don't need three more news agencies telling me their perspective on what's going on today. I need to hear from God alone. There's a God in heaven. He reigns on his throne. Nothing escapes his view. All things are by his will and by his plan. And if you want to understand what's going on, you've got to get a word from the one who planned what's going on. So this is where we are today. Last week, we started in Isaiah 6. I'll go back and recap verse 1, but our goal is through the month of November to cover this chapter. Because Isaiah lived at a time, in some ways it was like ours. Isaiah lived at a time where they had had a king who had been ruling for some 50 plus years, and all of a sudden this king dies. All of a sudden, the king that had brought them prosperity, the king that had sought the Lord, the king that had done well for the nation, the king that they trusted in, the king that they saw God work through, something happened, and it happened before he died, actually. It happened in his heart. See, this king got something twisted in his heart. He got his vision off. He lost some 2020 clarity because he got his focus off of the one who sits on the throne, and he began to think he was something great who sat on a throne. And he even got to the point where the Bible says he thought, you know what, I'm not only a king, I think I'm so great that I can actually walk into the temple and offer up some sacrifices myself. That's how great I think I am. He was going to take on the role of a priest, which according to the law, he could not do. But he did it with 80 plus priests going after him saying, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, Uzziah, don't do it. And he offered up the sacrifice in anger and contempt of these men and God himself. And as soon as he turned around, all the priests saw it. God had judged Uzziah because leprosy instantly appeared on his forehead, instantly covered his body. He would have to be removed from his family, removed from his friends, and within a matter of years, he would die. God, don't play with his holiness. He doesn't. You might think you have gotten past it. You might think you might have cheated the system. You might think you've gotten around it, but I promise you, God is always holy and just. He always brings his will to pass. You cannot escape it. You can't play with it. You can't hope to escape it. He is certain. He is sure. He is holy. And he is just. And Isaiah sadly became living proof to a nation. Don't play with the holiness of God. So this is where our chapter begins, Isaiah 6. Let's get into it. Verse 1. It says... In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. At a time when there was some uncertainty about who was going to reign on earth next, Isaiah saw who was reigning in heaven forever. That'll change your focus. If you're uncertain about what's going on here, get a look about what's certain there. If you're uncertain about who's going to reign next here, see the one who's reigning always there. It'll do something for your heart. It'll settle you down a little bit. It'll make you get off of your, your phone a little bit. It'll make you get into scripture a lot. It'll make you trust in what's known and not in what's unknown. Amen? Amen. So Isaiah sees this. I'm tempted to go back and replay the whole message from last week, but I'm not because you can go on YouTube and watch it all again. So I'm not going to replay verse 1, but Isaiah gets this vision of the Lord. Now, all we looked at last week was this verse, but that's not all the story because verse 2 says this. It says, and above it, above this throne where Isaiah sees the Lord, where Isaiah sees something he had never seen before, where Isaiah sees Jesus, whom he had not known before. He says, above this throne stood seraphim. Not a word we use every day, but a word for powerful, majestic angels. I'm not talking about fluffy, bald-headed angels that float around in the sky on clouds. I'm talking about warrior-class majestic, angelic beings. And they are there around this throne, the throne that reigns over eternity, the throne of all power, 
The throne where the king is seated, he's not pacing. The throne where the king is undisturbed by what's happening on earth, above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings, something Isaiah had never seen, something you and I have never seen, majestic angelic warriors with six wings, and it describes these six. It says, with two, he covered his face, with two, his feet, and with two, he flew. Angels around the throne, they had not sinned. They were not fallen. They were not imperfect. Yet here they are in this holy place them having never known sin, yet they are covering their face and their feet, and they are flying with two wings. They're covering their face and their feet, not because of something they had done, but because of how glorious this one was that they surrounded themselves with. His glory, his brightness is so majestic, so powerful, that even these seraphim are forced to cover themselves. The power and the majesty is like something you and I had never even come close to. And there's no disturbance here in this place. There's no erratic behavior. There's no panic. There's no fear. There's no anxiety. There is only great authority and power and majesty that Isaiah sees here in this moment. And this is going to fundamentally change Isaiah for the rest of his life. He sees these angelic figures, but then he hears something. Verse 3, it says, And one cried to another, in other words, they are in this chorus of crying out back and forth to one another, and he records exactly what they are saying. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. These angelic warriors crying out, because the thing that is most obvious about this one who sits on the throne is one distinct quality. It's not that the four are all saying something different. It's not that the four are saying something of their own opinion. They are crying out what is glaringly, majestically obvious that God is holy. He is perfect. He is whole. He is glorious. And they can't help but cry out in this three-time phrase, holy, holy, holy. It's fascinating to me that they didn't say wisdom, wisdom, Wisdom. They didn't say love, love, love. They didn't say understanding, understanding, understanding. There were so many things that they could have said, but there was one, one quality that stood out, and it was this truth that God is holy. He is set apart. He is unique. He is clean. He is just. He is unchanging. He is without fault. And he is burning white hot justice and truth. And the angels cover themselves at the sight of what they see. I love the fact that the angels also say, and the whole earth is full of his glory. At a time when the earth was still reeling from the effects of Adam's sin. 
it'd be like the angels looking down today and saying, the whole earth is full of his glory. And you and I are like, really? What is wrong with you guys? But that's what a perspective from heaven will do. It'll make you look at what's going on here and think, this place is whack. And when you get a glimpse of who sits on the throne and you get up where he is and you turn around and look back at the earth, you'll say, Lord, I see, I see in the midst of the chaos, you are holy and the whole earth is full of something glorious that you are up to. It's not finished. It's not complete. But because God's hands are on it, it's good. It's full of glory. Now, these angels describing what they see, this scene radiating just the power of holiness, We've seen it other times in Scripture. This isn't the only time that God's holy nature is on display. We have times in the Old Testament where God caused his spirit to fill the temple. And the priests were so overwhelmed at his glory and holiness that they had to back out of the space and just fall down on their faces because of his holiness. We know of a time in Scripture when I, Elijah was in a mountain rock cleft and the glory of the Lord passed by and he had to hide his face because of the glory and holiness of the Lord. Daniel describes a, a vision he saw and he says, which there are 10,000 times 10,000 angels all bowing in reverence to the Holy One on the throne. And then we have John in the New Testament saying that this king, he dwells in unapproachable light. Glory so great that you can't even approach it. And our God is holy. I'm afraid in our day, we've done a disservice to the very nature of God. And I'll say this, I have done a disservice. I've been in ministry for a while. And I look back over things I've said in my younger days, and I thought, dude, what is wrong with you? I'm grateful for grace. But even when I look now at things that I have even preached recently, and I look at this passage, I think, Lord, I don't know... If I and we as the church in this day have painted an accurate picture to the people around us about what you are like. We generally like to tell people, God is love, and he is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God is love. Those are true. But it the love of God really means little apart from the holiness of God. Let's look here. Holiness of God says, you have sinned. You are destined for eternal hell. You are incapable of living this life. You have the putrefying scent of death on you because of your sin. That's what holiness says. And up against that backdrop, God sends his son Jesus to rescue us out of the putrefying pit of impossibility and our sin and our shame and our disgust. That's when I say love only has meaning against the backdrop of holiness. You see what I'm saying? And because we haven't been faithful, I'll say me, I have not been faithful to portray 
the awesome holiness of God, I'm afraid I may have distorted the look of what love is. Here's what's happened in our day. We have so championed, God loves you. God understands you. God wants you to be happy. I'm afraid as a result of that, what we have produced is a generation of people who justify their sin under the banner of God loves me. God understands how I feel. I know I'm living I'm just going to go down the list here for a little bit. I know I'm living in immorality. I know I'm committing adultery. I know I'm, uh, I know I'm exploring my transgender lifestyle. I know I'm practicing homosexuality. I know I have been unfaithful. I know I have cheated. I know I have bad habits. I know, I know, I know, but God loves me. He understands me. That is what the culture of Christianity says today. It's true, right? I've heard even people visit churches, explain to them their sin, and leaders say things like, look, as long as you love Jesus, it's okay. Look, Sin is sin is sin is sin. Love deals with the guilt of your sin, but love says, stop it. Come out. Don't do that anymore. You have been set free, forgiven, declared holy. Now live holy. That's how it works. So that's why I say I'm afraid we've... I have done a disservice. God is forgiving. But what makes his forgiveness so great is the holiness that demands absolute perfection. I know God is merciful. But what makes mercy great is his absolute demand for true perfection in righteousness. I know God is kind, but his kindness only makes sense up against the backdrop of holiness that says the soul that sins will die. And so when Isaiah sees the throne and he sees Jesus on the throne and the angels are surrounding the throne and they have one word that they cry out to one another, and it's the word holy, that needs to become part of our conversation that we have with others about the gospel. If you start with Jesus loves you, apart from sin condemns you, then Jesus loves you only justifies you in your sin. Okay, let's move on. We're going to get somewhere today. Verse 4, Isaiah says, And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Four angelic beings crying out to one another, and when they speak, it's shaken the building. The doorposts, the most stable part of the building is thumping. It's bumping because these angelic figures are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. This is what happens when holiness invades a space. It shakes some things. It changes some things. Nothing is fixed in the presence of holiness. It all gets shook. Because God is holy. It's interesting here that it says the house is filled with smoke. Mm. Has he got a nice fireplace going in the corner? Nope. There's a white hot 
burning altar in this place. It is where sacrifices are made and it is so white hot that whatever touches it just burns up and all that's left is just the haze and the smoke. And it leaves this stunning awareness because of what he sees, because of what he hears, and because of just the experience alone that the glory of God emanates with holiness. You can't get past it. For Isaiah, as it is for our day, I'm sure there are times that Isaiah must have thought, Lord, you know there's a lot of mess going on down here. You know it's all crazy. You know what's there is not what's here, and people don't even have a clue about what's there. I get it. It is, it is out of this situation that Isaiah comes to some personal realization. Look at verse 5. It says, so this is Isaiah writing, very personal. He says, so I said, woe is me. Now, he doesn't use woe like we use woe. You and I have something happen to us while we're out at the store, and we go, whoa, what just happened, right? No, this woe means judgment. This woe means condemnation. This woe means you're about to pay the price for your sin. Woe is me. Isaiah says, I can't see this and not be moved here. The posts are shaking of the door, but I'm shaking on the inside because all of a sudden I realize I'm not like that. There's something wrong with me. I'm not holy. I'm not just. I'm not clean. I'm not perfect. Woe is me. I deserve judgment, God. I deserve punishment. Woe is me. He says, for I am undone. In other words, I don't have any excuses. I can't blame anybody. I can't point a finger. I can't say I don't deserve this. No, he says, I deserve it all. I've blown it. I'm a failure. I'm a sinner. I can't do this. You are holy and I am not. He says, because I am a man of unclean lips. That's fascinating to me that this is where Isaiah starts. Isaiah is about to be called as a prophet. His mouth is what's going to be used. And Isaiah says, God, how in the world? Because this is not like that. This, all kind of uncleanness comes out of. God, how could you call me to that? How could you use me? I'm not like you. I don't say holy, holy, holy. I say a lot of other stuff. And Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Isaiah said, hey, it's not just me. It's everybody. What's fascinating is that Isaiah owns the fact that he's been affected by the world. God, they all speak perversion. They all speak lies. They all speak arrogantly. They've all turned against you. None of them speak truth. None of them speak holiness. And God, neither do I. I've been infected. I've been affected by them. Whoa. It's me, Isaiah says. Isaiah says there's woe. There's woe that's coming. Judgment that's coming. He knew it was coming for himself as well. I want to give you a little bit of backstory before we move on. You don't have to turn there right now, but if you were to turn a few verses back into chapter 5, Isaiah was giving a commentary on his day. And he had just 
been pronouncing some woe on the culture. Now, this whole next section is just going to get real uncomfortable for all of us. I'm just going to tell you up front. It's just what happens when you look at truth. Because Isaiah had listed several woes about the culture. Verse 20 of chapter 5, he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Isaiah said, Things have gotten messed up down here, God. The stuff that we used to call right, now they call wrong. The stuff that used to be called wrong, they call right now. Can anybody in this room identify with what Isaiah is experiencing? We used to call it abortion. Now they call it women's choice. They used to call them guns. Now they're called assault weapons. It used to be called capitalism. Now it's called greed. We used to call it socialism. Now they call it common good. We used to call it speaking biblical truth. Now they call it hate speech. Everything's gotten twisted, God. The stuff that used to be just so obvious used to be so clear. They've twisted it all up. They've turned it around. They've redefined the terms for their benefit to make themselves not guilty anymore. It's even happened in and around the church. Love has been changed in its definition. Love now somehow is supposed to mean acceptance of false religion. Love is now supposed to mean approval of sinful behavior. Love is now supposed to be the tolerance of false doctrine. Love is now supposed to be the refusal to rebuke anyone in their sin. Love is now never offending anyone. Things have gotten twisted. And Isaiah said to that nation, there's judgment coming. There's woe to you. You see, because God is holy, he lets nothing slide. He lets nothing pass. And unless you bring it under the blood of Jesus Christ, it is actively on the table for judgment. Because God is holy and God is just and he will bring it to pass. A nation that calls right, wrong, and wrong, right, will suffer for that. Those who twist, distort, deceive will pay for that. They will face judgment for that. And here's the deal. I don't need a special revelation from God to tell me that because the revelation of God's word tells me that already. The soul that sins shall die. It's clear. I don't need a new revelation. It's already been given to us in the revelation of his word. One of the other woes that Isaiah pronounced back in his day in chapter 5 was a woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. In other words, God, we don't need you. We got this. God, you don't even really exist. We got this. We've got the smarts. We got the plan. We don't need you. We can lie, we can cheat, we can deceive, we can be immoral. We got this. There's no judgment, there's no throne, there's no truth. There's only what truth is what we call truth, what we feel is truth. And Isaiah says, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. He wasn't through with the woes. He went on and said, woe to mighty I'm sorry, he said, woe to men mighty at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink. I didn't write that. Isaiah wrote that under the pen of God's spirit. He says, when you as a nation come to the place where you're looking for your escape in spirits in a bottle instead of the spirit from the throne, whoa. When you get to where you think you can outsmart, outdo, go against, and it won't hurt you, Whoa. He went on and said, Woe to those who justify the wicked for a bribe 
and take away justice from the righteous man. When you begin to take money under the table for your own personal benefit and then not tell the truth, when you twist the truth for your own personal benefit, when you're willing to lie and deceive to get your way, woe, he says to you. And Isaiah said, here's what's going to happen. He said, fire will devour you like stubble. The flame will consume the chaff, the root. Their root will be as rottenness. Their blossom will ascend like dust because they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. God is holy. God is just. He will protect his law. He will protect his holiness, he will protect his own, and he will protect truth. Our culture today doesn't like that. The culture today says, there's no God. You're God. There's no fixed truths. There's only what I experience and choose. And today... People will justify just about anything. Perversion, sexual deviance, lying, cheating, drunkenness, outbursts of anger, envy, hatred, lust, greed, all of that. They'll justify all of it because it feels good. And God loves me and accepts me. Why wouldn't he want me to feel good? We're paying for the deception that I'm afraid the church has broadcast for many years. We're watching the news unfold today. Where the choice for a leader of our land appears to be affected by lying and cheating. We're watching the voices of righteous men and women be silenced in the public square on social media because they speak truth. We're watching mainstream media shut down narratives that don't fit theirs. Cover-up has replaced honesty. Redaction has replaced truth. And if you're speaking truth, you're on a hit list. Your name is being collected. Your data is being filed. Because there's a world today who thinks they own the truth, who think they are greater than the truth. But I will remind you of this. There is a king in heaven who sits on a throne. He is just and holy and righteous. You do not escape his view. You do not escape his knowledge, his awareness. And he will bring justice about because the angels say the most primary quality about him is, is that he is holy, holy, holy. Amen. Now, just as Isaiah declared the woes about his home country, he came to this situation. He said, woe is me. Because he got a glimpse of this holiness, and it was a whole lot more personal than he ever thought. It just got all up into his life. And all of a sudden, he had to deal with his own attitudes. He had to deal with his actions. He couldn't blame his mom, blame his dad, blame the culture, blame the church, blame anybody else. This is him and God, and this is where you and I are all of a sudden. You, standing before the Lord, the holy, holy, holy Lord of hosts, and when you're there in front of him, you and I have to deal with what's going on in our life. You can't dismiss it. You can't push it off. You can't deny it. You can't blame anybody. It's you. It's me. Now, Isaiah, for him, the first thing he noticed was what was coming out of his mouth. So we have to go there this morning. Because Isaiah did. He did it first. 
you and I have to deal with what's come out of our mouth. Those words where we like to exaggerate a point to try to prove our point. Those words where we like to try to build ourselves up and gossip about others and tear everybody else down. Those words where we refuse to recognize the holiness and glory of God. Those words that come out of our mouth where we take the very nature of God himself and drag him into our anger, where we say things like, Jesus, in our anger, where we say things like, holy, where we say things like, God, what are we doing taking the holy name of God and dragging it right on down through our anger and selfishness? What have we done? Isaiah all of a sudden became aware. Lord, and he was undone. He knew he was guilty. Now, if the passage ended here, it'd be terribly frightening. Isaiah continues and he says, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then something glorious happened. He became aware of the holiness of God, but that wasn't the end of the story. Verse 6, Isaiah says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me. Can you imagine being in this situation and you're undone by your own sinfulness and all of a sudden you look over and one of these majestic angelic beings is like, it was coming right toward you like, like, I'm already undone, just stay away from me. Says it flew to him and he was having in his hand a live coal which he had taken from the tongs from the altar. That's only making it worse. He's bringing white hot justice straight for him. All right, Jason, I'm coming for you. It's this angel, he's coming right and he's bringing this hot coal. He's coming right for you. He's bringing his holy justice, righteousness right up to Isaiah. What is going to happen? Verse 7. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Woo! He thought because the angel was coming toward him. He thought because he was bringing the white hot holy justice of God that this was going to wreck him, that this was going to destroy him. And instead the angel says, Now, because you have seen the king and truth has touched you, instead of being destroyed, you have been purged. You have been cleansed. This fundamentally changes Isaiah's life. Isaiah will get a perspective on everything horizontal because he has this vertical moment. For you and I, if you want to get some clarity about what's going on in your life and what's going on in this world, the place to start is by approaching the throne of God. And there, when you discover you're laid out in your own weakness and despair, look up again because you're going to see the king coming toward you. And he's going to be bringing his white hot justice not to destroy you, but to cleanse you. And if you'll let him touch you, if you'll let him touch your life, if you'll let him touch those areas in your life where you know you are undone, he can make you clean. And this is what will give you clarity. Because if you can't get rid of your guilt, your fear, your bitterness, your envy, your shame, your wrath that you've got for other people. It'll distort everything about your life. But when you get those cleared up and removed, then you will see clearly. And this is what our world needs today. Stop the blaming. 
Stop the justifying. Stop all that I want to do because it feels good. There is a king in heaven who calls you to righteousness. He is holy, holy, holy. Come to him. He can cleanse your life. He can open your eyes. He'll give you the vision shift that you need. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me? Father, today, as we approach your throne, we are undone. We know that in and of ourselves, we are only deserving of judgment, deserving of your wrath, because we we are sinners. But I thank you that when we receive your grace by faith, you make us into something new. You purge us, you cleanse us, and you give us new perspective and hope. And God, in the midst of our world today, we need that vision shift, that hope. So today, we turn our eyes to you, to see you reigning on a throne. And there we know that what looks like chaos here is only clarity to you. Because no one has caught you off guard. No one will unseat you. No one will dethrone you. You will bring your ways to pass. You will execute justice. You will protect the paths of truth. So we stand in that today, God. We trust you. We trust no one else but you. And so in our moments of fear today, let us go back. Let us go back to the place where you purged and made us new. We'll rest in that, knowing that you always get the victory because you are always holy and just. I thank you for that this morning, Father, for new sight, new vision. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.